chapter 1, there we go, verses um, 18 through 25. Here are these words. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being destroyed, but it is the power of God for those of us who are being saved. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will reject the intelligence of the intelligent. Where are the wise? Where are the legal experts? Where are today's debaters? Hasn't God made the wisdom of the world foolish? In God's wisdom, he determined that the world wouldn't come to know him through its wisdom. Instead, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the kerygma. Jews asked for signs and Greeks looked for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. This is because the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So a few weeks ago, Pastor Matt asked me a question if I liked Star Wars, and I didn't really know how to answer him. And so I, there's, there's one, there's the short answer, yes. Um, there's a longer answer um, that I spent much of my youth over-invested in Star Wars. There was a period in 1999 where I had read every Star Wars book published. Um, there were 45 at the time. I'd read them all. I checked the list. I made sure. I um, read the comic books. I read the Shadows of the Empire comic book, which was about a clone of the Emperor who came back, and Luke Skywalker wanted to infiltrate it, but then Luke turned to the dark side, and so Leia had to infiltrate it again. Um, I got on these message board arguments about the special edition of the Star Wars, of where whether or not Han Solo fired first or Greedo, the bounty hunter, fired first, and it's, it was serious conversations about this before the uh, prequels came out. I had debates about how much of the 1978 novelization of Star Wars would be included in the prequels. I thought about this a lot, so I didn't know exactly how to answer Pastor Matt's question of if I like Star Wars. My, my Star Wars fandom has mellowed a lot over the years, but I still remember so much of it. It, it never goes away. We, the movie I saw the most ended up being The Return of the Jedi because my grandparents had HBO for six weeks at one point and recorded every single movie on VHS. And so these were the movies we could watch, and one of them was Star Wars. And I still remember like the intro HBO ad in it. And yeah, see these, these memories saw it over and over again. But I also saw the original, episode four, many times, and there's this moment um, in episode four. And so the, the scene is they're going, they're trying to find Princess Leia, and it's Han Solo and Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker, and they're trying to um, go to Alderaan. But then they discover that Alderaan has been destroyed, uh, Princess Leia's home planet, and they don't know what to do, and they get stuck in the tractor beam of the Death Star, and they're just trying, oh no, what should we do? We should just give up, and all these kinds of things. And so Obi-Wan makes this plan of what they can do. And Han Solo says, oh, you're just an old fool. And Obi-Wan says, who's the more foolish, the fool or the fool who follows him? I think about that a lot with, with talking about this, this foolishness. Who's the more foolish, 
the person who likes a movie made for kids or the, the person who spent hours and hours and days and days reading and digesting and arguing about a movie made for kids? Who's the more foolish? In, in this season of Lent, we've been talking about restlessness, my brothers and sisters. Two weeks ago, we talked about being restless with temptation, how temptations leave us restlessness, make us uncomfortable about where we are and the space we are in. How temptation is always tempting and we only find our peace when we seek our peace in God. Last week we talked about being restless with suffering, how suffering clouds our vision about what is possible for us. But we are called as Christians not to avoid suffering, but to stand with those who are suffering as Christ did with us. Today we're going to talk about foolishness. And there's a deep ambiguity about foolishness and the ambiguity in the scriptures that even Paul gets to. Foolishness according to whom? Who is the foolish one? There's an old, the, um, if you're a second year person in high school or college, you're called a sophomore, right? And a sophomore comes from this wonderful Greek phrase with sophos, wise, and moros, fool. You're a wise fool. You're, you're smart enough just to get into trouble. That's what, that's what sophomores really are, as we all know. Um, <laughs> But, but it's still like, like, why, like foolish according to whom? Mostly your parents, but foolish according to whom? Is that, that's the question about foolishness. In the scriptures, in 1 Corinthians, Paul plays up this ambiguity. There is the foolishness of the cross. There is the foolishness of the world. There is the wisdom of the cross and the wisdom of the world. When we act like Christians and follow Jesus, we can look foolish to the world. Later in this letter, Paul points out that if there is no resurrection of the dead, we should eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But if there is a resurrection of the dead, everything should change, and we should be willing to act Christ-like in this world. Yet it can still be difficult sometimes to parse out the differences between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of the cross. Because honestly, in some ways, Christians have made the cross very palatable and worldly. The church tasted power, and it liked the flavor. It liked being an authority. It was willing to let go of some of the other things as long as it had its, its figure in society as this place of importance. And so who, who cares if someone's talking about the cross or talking about our neighbor or talking about those who are hurting when we have this, these fancy Fancy gilded crosses in these gilded churches and gilded places. The church liked that. But the wisdom of the world is not just about, about fanciness and, and the gildedness. It's mostly about what is the next thing. This is the true wisdom of the world. What is the next thing? What is the next hit show? What is the next awesome stock like GameSpot that's just going to balloon and make a ton of money? What's the next thing? What's the next fashion? What's the next song? What's the next app? And some of us get to a point where we, we assume that we don't, don't fall prey to this, but we all do in our own ways. What is the next thing? What's the next golf course that's going to show up? What's, what's the next great vacation spot? What's the place that people haven't heard about that I can go? What is the next thing? Oftentimes, this, this wisdom of the world that looks for the next thing is because it can find so many things old and boring so easily. Boredom itself points to a restlessness. 
Boredom is a form of restlessness. When we are bored, we are not in a comfortable place. We're not where we think we should be. We think about other things we could be doing. We think about other people or other entertainments and screens that that could be entertaining us. We think about like, oh my gosh, this sermon is boring. He just goes on and on. Or this, this song is boring. I don't understand what the point of it is. Oh my gosh, this party is so boring. It's like there's nobody to talk to. Or this party is so boring, this person won't shut up. That can, that can happen to us. It's always, you know, in our house, boredom is a kind of swear word. We try to make sure you, you can't say boredom around it. It's like it's one of the worst to say. Um, as, as my father-in-law said um, to my wife when she was a young girl, it's like, you know, if you're bored, it's either because you're lazy or, and you're, or you're not smart. And I know you're smart, so something else is going on. It's kind of harsh, but it's okay. Love you, Ani. <laughs> But, but that, it gets to, in, in the ancient world, um, in Greek, boredom is called asadia. Asadia, and asadia was a sin that the early church fathers knew. John Cassian wrote about asadia, and he said, and he's describing a monastery, and so think about a monk in a monastery, and this is someone suffering from asadia. He looks about anxiously this way and that, and sighs that none of his brethren come to see him, and often goes in and out of his cell and frequently gazes up to the sun as if it was too slow in setting. And so a kind of unreasonable confusion of mind takes possession of him. That unreasonable confusion of mind, that description of boredom, ah, when is this going to end? When is the next thing going to happen? It's this restlessness. This asadia can strike us all. And if we wish to resist it, something must change. As another early church writer said, if we wish to resist the promptings of Asadia, we must enlarge the whole horizon of our love to contemplate the loving gentleness of the humanity of the Lord. We need to expand our horizon. We need to expand our vision. The problem with being bored and what we talk about being bored in our house is if you're bored, it means you're not paying attention to where you are. That wherever we are, it is a beautiful aspect of God's creation. There is something interesting going on as long as you pay attention to it. But so often, our vision has been narrowed. Our vision has been narrowed about what we find amusing and entertaining, what we're willing to do, what we get excited about. And what this writer is saying, that we need to expand our horizon to include what God has offered for us so that we don't fall victim to this, so we don't get distracted by all the things in this world, distracted by, by the next big thing. Distracted by the dopamine hits of social media, distracted by, by sh- TV shows, distracted by outrage, distracted by our sports teams or our political teams winning, realizing that, that social media and Facebook particularly thrives on outrage, thrives on conflict. The algorithm is designed to show you the most outrageous thing possible. So you can be like, oh, oh my gosh, did you see what he or she wrote? Did you see that? And then come and, I can't believe you wrote this. Um, and over and over again, because their goal is to make you stare at that screen as long as possible. And people are a lot more likely to stare at that screen if it's something outrageous than if it's a cute bunny that you just click cute and then move on with your life. <laughs> it's, it's designed that way. 
All of this points to what Paul calls the wisdom of the world. Paul also says that in God's wisdom, God showed that the wisdom of the world cannot lead to God. We can't get from here to there by looking for the next big thing and the next great thing. God was pleased in God's wisdom to offer us the preaching of the cross, this, this Greek word, the kerygma, the kerygma, which means like the heart of God's message, that Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ's resurrection offers us true freedom from the wisdom of the world. More than miraculous, we're offered abundant life by God freely. If you ever studied economics, you probably came across this phrase, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Yes, I can hear that. <laughs> it's often said, and it has a good point in economics, because economics is usually the study of scarcity and how to use resources. And if something is offered for free, somebody is paying for it. Like, somebody is going to pay for it eventually in the end. But, but that's not how God works. You know, with, with social media, social media is often offered free, but, but there's an adage with social media as well that if you don't know what the product is, you are the product. You are what is being sold to people. But that is not the way with God. As another theologian wrote, Jesus teaches that our relationship with God should not be thought of as a transaction in which I give something to God, either a slice of my time or my attention, or something that I give up as a sacrifice, some number of good deeds, in order to receive some benefit, whether this be a crude expectation of prosperity and material gain, or perhaps, more likely, the more sophisticated desire for peace of mind and spiritual consolation. This is the idea that I can give God some determinate amount of my love, or at least of my obedience, in order to receive some specific reward. But, but the entire life of Jesus is an assault on this idea. In embodying for us the God who is love, the God with whom we can strike no bargain, but to whom we can give nothing less than everything, and from whom we can only receive with gratitude. The foolishness of the cross, the foolishness of the gospel by which we realize the truth of God can be a true foolishness. People can laugh at you for believing that Jesus rose from the dead. People can laugh at you for going out of your way to help your neighbor. People can think you are a sucker. People can think we are suckers. But for us in this season of Lent, are we willing to look a little foolish in front of others in order to stay faithful to God? And really the kind of foolishness I think Paul is pointing to and the kind that Jesus says over and over again points to is the foolishness of radical love for our neighbor. Are we willing to be challenged for our love of neighbor? Are we willing to look unreasonable to our acquaintances for our love of neighbor? Are we willing to push against what is expected of us? Are we willing to train our children in how to love their neighbor? Are we willing to not let that inherent desire of, of children to care for their neighbor, are we willing to not push that away as they get older? Because sometimes that can happen. Our, you know, our kids can see a stranger and see them in need and think, oh, we should do something. And speaking for myself, grown people like me can be like, oh, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing we can do. We should move on with our life. And that, that extinguishes that, that heart and that desire in children. Are we willing to, to look foolish 
for God's love for others? Are we willing to look foolish for God's love for ourselves and willing to accept God's love fully? Because what it comes down to is the wisdom of the world leaves us restless. It does, the wisdom of the world. You can never get to the next, next thing. There's always a next thing. There is always the next thing going to be. Next year is going to be a bigger thing. Next year is going to be a bigger iPhone. Next year is going to be a bigger Switch or PlayStation or whatever the next thing is going to be. Next year is going to be a better car. There's always going to be a next thing. The wisdom of the world tells us to moderate the kindness we show people. The wisdom of the world gives us rationalizations for why we should not act and why we should not love. It gives us reasons to think, oh, I don't need to do that. They are not my responsibility. Ultimately, the wisdom of the world only gets us to a restless place. We never arrive where we are seeking. There is no next thing. We don't get to our source by looking for the next thing. We find rest and we find peace when we seek the living God who created everything. When we're willing to look foolish for the sake of the cross, when we're willing to be foolish for the sake of others, when we're willing to restructure our lives around offering ourselves to others and to not make excuses for that. Love of neighbor is not a side gig. It's not something we can do on the side with that extra 45 minutes we find each week and say, okay, I have time to love right now. That's not how it works. That's not how God's love works for us. God doesn't see us as a side gig, as something extraneous, but as something essential that God created us out of abundance and decided that you are loved and worthy of life, worthy of joy and beauty in this world. Loving our neighbor is not something we can just do in marginal times. God shows us what happens when we marginalize our neighbors. If we push them to the side, if we make our neighbors just a tangent of our life, we are going to be restless. We are going to be unsatisfied. We're going to think to ourselves, oh, I just don't understand it. I just don't get it. I just don't see the purpose. We're going to, to hold on to that, that anxiety and that restlessness without realizing that we have done this to ourselves by ignoring the world around us. In this season of Lent, I encourage you to break through the lies that the world tells you, that what your value is and what your worth is is whether or not you look foolish to people, that your value is in how cool you look or how presentable or how, how respectable you are. Let us break through the lies that tell us unless you can do everything, unless you're skilled at everything, you can do nothing. Let us break through the lies that tell us unless you are productive to society, you're not worth anything. God sees each of us as intrinsically valuable and worthy of love and affection and attention. And no matter where we are, no matter what we used to be able to do or what we can do now, we can act for God's kingdom through prayer, through love, through offerings of ourselves, through taking care of the people around us. Let us be willing to be foolish for God because only there will we find true wisdom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.